I'm reading from the NIV uh, 2011 version. There's some different words in here that you might be used to, so it threw me off this morning. So, All right, uh, from 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great are you, sovereign Lord, that there is none like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And now the New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. 
his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take, the bag of gold from, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of our Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Father, sometimes it's on the surface of our skin and on the forefront of our brain that we know, that we crave the divine commendation. We want praise from you, but sometimes we don't know that's what we want. It's buried down deep, and we look everywhere else for it, for someone to approve of us, to say we did good, to say that we were enough. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, As you have commissioned us to colonize earth with this life of heaven, we pray that you would let these words now redirect our attention to the praise that we crave, to the happiness that you offer, and help us to grab a hold of it. We pray in the name of our welcoming Savior. Come now, Holy Spirit. Give me nutritious words that cause growth and cause faith to grow bright in each one here. In Jesus' name, amen. When Kathy and I were newly married, it was the only time in our relationship that she stayed up later than I, because I am an excessive night owl. But she was in graduate school, and she had a lot of homework, and I was working at a software company and had work in the morning, and so on some rare occasion, I went to bed before she did. And in those days, before the troubles of life had overtaken me, I slept astonishingly peacefully. I laid on my back with my hands crossed as if I was in a sleeping commercial. And I don't think I really ever moved. I kept because I was considerate this way, our room at about 51 degrees so that no one would get hot. And we had a fan at the end of the bed set to helicopter speed. We didn't want to get hot, right? We, we didn't want to. <laughs> Kathy loved it. Wearing a parka in our apartment in June in Nashville. Well, so one night I was there sleeping and... And Kathy was getting into the bed, and she felt my burly arm, and it was cold. 
And there I was, not moving, peaceful. Maybe eternally peaceful. And so in the midst of my slumber, I experienced something kind of like this. Such that I have not slept in 22 years again. (laughs) Always when I do with one eye open, never knowing if my heart rate is ever going to come back down. (laughs) And I don't know how pleasantly I responded to that. It's like, yes, dear. What are you doing? Why are you doing? But it reminds me of this passage. The trauma of that reminds me of the trauma that this passage creates. It's not trauma. It's mainly funny. But the waking up. Jesus, in this passage that many of you have read and trembled at over the years, precedes the passage of the sheep and the goats, both of which are Jesus answering a question. And the way he answers it can make us tremble if we're paying attention, but hopefully it can make us not only tremble with fright, but tremble with the kind of anticipation that he wants. Because in this passage, what he's doing is answering a question that started in the previous chapter. This is part of what scholars would call the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's talking as he's about to head to Jerusalem about the signs of his coming. He looks at the temple and he says, You see these stones, disciples, as he walks through the city? Not one of them, I tell you, will be left standing on another. And his disciples say, when is this going to happen? Tell us what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age. They ask him that question. And so Jesus gives a speech where he tells several parables, stories to help wake people up. And that's his concern. That all of these parables that he tells, including this one right here, have this effect. They want to make sure in Jesus' long time away, because that's part of the issue here, that the disciples then had some picture that Jesus' conquest as king would mean that things were about to be awfully bright. And that pain... And distress and injustice was about to be junked like your old refrigerator. They thought it was imminent. And Jesus is trying to prepare them for this idea that it may be a while, but don't you let that cause you to get drowsy, to fall into a deep slumber, and to imagine that you are not living within a certain kingdom of the one who rightfully claims all as his own. And so as we have this last Sunday in our series, Colonizing Earth with the Life of Heaven, it seemed fitting to me to to leave with this sort of wake-up of Jesus, this stirring us up, shaking us, where we might have fallen asleep to remind us of things that we actually already believe and are already so precious to us. And if they're not, to alert us to what might ought to gain preciousness in our sight. And so Jesus, in answer to the question, what's it going to be like at the end of the age? What will be the signs of your coming? Jesus says, again, it will be like a man going 
on a journey. Who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. That's what the kingdom of God, this reign of Jesus Christ, where he is reestablishing his rightful, benevolent, healing rule over all of the earth. It will be like someone who goes off on a really long journey. But before he does, he calls his servants to himself and he entrusts wealth to them. He entrusts his property to them. He says, here. To one, he gives five talents of money or five bags of gold. And don't you love the NIV 2011? If you're going to protest something, never mind. But you know, it's actually a pretty good thing that the NIV 2011 did, changing this from talents to to bags of gold. It's okay. I, I don't want to make comments about translation. But one of the things that's happened for us is because we hear the word talent. And for us, that means being able to talk real good or have a nice forehand in tennis. That's a talent, something you can do well. But that's not what a talent is here. A talent is some gold. It weighs something. It's a measurement of money. And so we have just come to use from this passage talent as something that we can do good. So he gives five bags of gold to to one of his servants and two bags to another. And immediately we're told that these go to work and they gain a profit. They double what's been handed to them. But there was another man who had received one bag of gold or one talent. He got it, and it's told this way, but the man who received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. We're being alerted, but these two were excited with what they got. They realized something precious had been entrusted to them, and they they set to work. How may we please our master? How may we gain a profit for our king? as his servants, with his stuff. But this one quickly gets it, gets out the shovel, hides it in the ground. Which in the ancient world is the safest place to keep something preserved. After a long time, we're told, and see here's Jesus again, after a long time, the master of these servants returns and He's wanting to settle accounts with them. There he is again saying, it's going to be a long time. And in that long time, different kinds of reactions can happen. A person could could fall asleep. They could fall into a deep slumber. They could become lazy and careless and wicked. They could say, it doesn't matter about that king. It doesn't matter about my master. It doesn't matter about this life that he's entrusted to me. Or they could respond with, how may I please this master? What may I do to have to have a way to welcome him when he comes to welcome me? And when the master returns and settles accounts, The man who received the five brought the other five. And he said, Master, look, I took what you gave me and I I made five more. And the master said these words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll now put you in charge of many things. 
Come and share your master's happiness. That's a good expression to put like a lozenge on your tongue. Come and share your master's happiness. That's what Jesus wants to wake you up to do. The man with two talents did the same. Look, I made two. And Jesus says, good and faithful servant. Well done. Faithful with a few, I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent said, Master, I knew you were a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. Here's what belongs to you. And his master replies in words that might shake us out of deep sleep. You wicked, lazy servant. Yo, you knew I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I haven't scattered. Well, then you should have put my money on the deposit at the bank and at least got 1.12% interest for me. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who has the 10. For everyone who has been who will be everyone who has will be given more and with abundance and whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth it's a great memorial day text it makes you want to go out to the lake and go skiing and fishing and have some watermelon Jesus, who's playing the master role in this parable, meets this Mr. Play-it-safe, do-nothing, non-faith man with words like wicked, lazy, and worthless. And you might say, what in the world is Jesus doing saying such a stark thing? Why is he calling him wicked? Lazy. Worthless. Well, part of it, interestingly enough, might be seen in your own relationships. You may have had a marriage at one point, or in one now. I have been an observer of marriage, having perfected my own, (laughs) and have heard people say before, in earnestness, not being ironical, I don't know what they want. We won't be gendered here. It could go either way, I suppose. I don't know what they want. I didn't do anything. Why are they so mad I didn't do anything? You ever said that or heard that? What are you so upset about? I didn't do anything. And most generally, when you're on the outside, you realize quite quickly, well, yes, that's the problem. You didn't. Do. Anything. Love longs to be concretized. Loyalty demands to be expressed. Affection wants to be actionated. I just made that word up. Put into action. And so sometimes we condemn ourselves with our own confession. I didn't do anything. And that's... Really what Jesus is getting after him about. He didn't do anything. 
And then you ask the question, why didn't he do anything? Why did he play it safe? Why did he do nothing? And then you start to get to the heart of the matter and you can get some insight into your own self, as can I. Because often a lack of action in our faith, a lack of putting what we believe into action, demonstrates how little we think about Jesus. This servant... When Jesus comes to settle accounts with him, starts out the interchange with an insult. You know, like when you go in to seek a raise from your boss, the first thing you want to do is, I want a raise because I know you'll never give me one. You're a ridiculous, thoughtless jerk. May I have 10% increase, please? You don't do that. This servant begins the examination of his master over his accounts and what he did with what God entrusted to him with an accusation of his master. You're a hard man. You're an unsevere man. You're an unfair man. So I was scared. And I played it safe. I can't trust you. Who knows what you're going to do flying off the handle as you do? Who knows what you're going to do? How unreasonable you are. And it's interesting that Jesus calls him wicked. You ever heard that expression, takes one to no one? You might have used that when you were a kid. Oh, you're a nerd. Takes one to no one. Or put more elegantly... We see others not as they are, but as we are. It's very interesting that this man, who was Mr. Play It Safe, who was ruled by fear, who did nothing and had no trust, thought little of Jesus because what had happened was, it wasn't that Jesus was wicked, it wasn't that his master was unfair and stern and mean and angry with him, it was that he was wicked. It was that he was distrusting. It was that he was angry at his master. He thought, you're unfair. So he just projected what he was thinking onto his master. We do it all the time. A gossip can spot a gossip from a mile away. Anybody who does in their lives what you hate about yourself you will pick up on faster than anybody because you're a student of yourself and what you feel about things and how you come at things becomes the lens through which you see. And this self-justifying servant who did nothing, that was his only error, he didn't do anything with what God gave him, makes an accusal of God which is really an accusal of himself. And the master calls him on it. Wicked servant. You've thought little of me. And if you really thought this little of me, then why didn't you act on what you actually thought? And that gets to the lazy part. See, the lack of action means that he thought little of Jesus in the sense that he thought so little of his character. He thought so little of who he was. He, he diminished him. He assassinated his character. But he also thought little of him in terms of quantity. He just didn't think about him. 
What was he doing when the master was away for a very long time? He immediately had buried this treasure. Apparently, he went on his way. And he didn't do anything about the treasure. He didn't do anything about the trust. He went on about his life. He gave no thought to his master. And when the master comes back, he doesn't say, I'm so sorry. I misgaged things. Like the prodigal who spent and blew everything. He accuses the one who's holding him to account. It's an interesting thing. In our time, we can do it and we can see other people do it. Where we can see people, for instance, put up stiff arms to keep God away. The Israelites in one place say, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Stop putting God in our path. We don't like that. Stop seeing visions. Stop having dreams. Stop telling us what God wants. We don't like what God wants. They're at least honest. But we're surrounded by people right now who are constantly making accusations of God. How can he be good? How can we trust him when he lets such awful things happen? I would never worship a God who would tell me what I could do or not do with my body. And then we just dismiss it. Or as Pascal said, we, we think from time to time we realize this important thing like, oh, we might die one day. We might be held account one day by some supreme God who might examine our lives. We might have to give an answer to him. Boy, that seems really important. I guess I'll never think about that. That's how men handle it, he says. They just seek to be diverted. If I can drink enough beer and play enough golf, perhaps it'll work itself out. Leslie Newbigin said it's so many of the answers that abound these days. How can we really know what's true? How can we really know that the Bible's true? How can we really know that God says that, that I should obey that? He says that the fact that people say there's no truth is an evasion of the serious business of living. It's cowardice. It's lazy. It's not bothering to think about this reality of a resurrected Lord who said, I want you to wake up because I want you to have a share in my happiness. And so it's worth asking yourself today, one, do you think, do you think little about Jesus? Which is to say, do you think little of his character? Do you think that he's snarling? That he's frowning? That he can't be pleased? That he's up close in your face, holding your face mask, screaming at you? Or that he is someone who looks at everything you try to do and says, mm-mm-mm-mm, who's going to get you if you mess up? Or doesn't like you? Can I make a guarantee that for most of you in here, who have trouble, for instance, keeping your commitments. You find your devotion waning easily. You don't follow through on the service that you've promised. You don't call people back. You don't engage relationships. 
Do you know, and you've looked with envy sometimes at others, where do they get this devotion? How are they so free? How do they love others so well? How do they come through when it, even when it hurts? So much of your lack of devotion, so much of our piddly commitment keeping goes back to a diminished view of God. You're a wicked and hard man, I perceive. People who don't think God loves them, people who don't know that he has accepted them, will not be very good at serving him. Who wants to serve somebody you think can't be pleased? And if you find yourself not doing anything, wondering, why do I not have any appetite for this? Wonder, well, maybe I'm not even thinking of Christ. Maybe my desires, my interests are not aligned with his. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something about who he is. Mr. Play It Safe was a do-nothing, non-faithed person. But then you have these other two who received much, and they eagerly set to work getting a profit for their master. This parable is not about literal investing, although I assume it, that could be an application. But it's about receiving a trust. It's about recognizing, I've received something rather splendid. Some commentators would say, you know, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples, you have been entrusted with the secrets of the kingdom of God. That's an amazing trust. You know something that everybody else doesn't know. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. So men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries or the secret things of God. I care very little, he says, if I am judged by you or by a human court. I don't even judge myself, he says. My conscience is clear, but that don't make me innocent. He says, don't. You can never get him to say it right. But that don't make me innocent. He says, it's the Lord who judges me. And he says, so don't prematurely judge things. In the, in the end, God's going to scrutinize us. And then he says this wonderful thing. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. Oh. See, these people who are realize that they had received a trust, the secrets of the kingdom of God, that they were approval expecting. They were active faith, therefore. They thought, there is a happiness that awaits me, the smile of my God, the approval of my master. That's what I'm made for. That's what I crave. And I know, many of you, that's what you want too. We're looking around for it in all kinds of places. Who will approve us? Who will say, yes, you did good? Who will say that our life isn't and hasn't been a throwaway? Who will tell us as mothers or as daughters, as fathers or as sons or as friends, who will tell us that maybe we're not as worthless as we tell ourselves we are? 
And these who got a hold of the secrets of the kingdom of God, who realized they could be accepted by this king, who could be welcomed in, though there was nothing welcomable about them, they recognized we're servants and we have a trust. And so now we can prove faithful. This puts them in the category of an eager child on Mother's Day, making for their mom a breakfast that no mom at any restaurant in the history of the world would ever order with dubious ingredients. Sweet and low on toast with Nutella and marshmallows. I don't know. I'm making up stuff. But she eats it. Well, maybe. She admires it because her love looks on and delights in the heart that wants to please the one they were created to please. I heard these ladies the other day at a gas station, at the Shell station in Murfreesboro, and they were having a conversation. The lady had come in to pay. She would not pay at the pump. And then the other lady, who has told us that she had spent some time in the clank, or clank, clank, what, in jail, I don't know. And she said, I don't ever want to go back there, but I got a friend. And they were talking about all the different ways that credit card fraud could be perpetrated. I got in on a secret meeting. And I thought, oh no, wait, why do you not pay at the pump? This is what I was wondering. I think I need to go find out about this because I hear the, I overhear the end of a conversation. They're in the know about something. But they didn't tell me. But it was affecting how they acted. They thought, surely, if I use my credit card here, I'm more vulnerable. They had ideas, you see. We're always, says Dallas World, at the mercy of our ideas. And a person who realizes that their life and what they know about Christ has been given to them as a trust, not just their life, but their stuff and their education and their experiences and even, yes, their sorrows. These are trusts that you have an opportunity to say, oh Christ, since you love me, since I look forward one day to seeing and hearing you say, well done. Share happiness with me. How may we spend ourselves today? How may you spend me today to use what I have to make you known, to make the secrets of the kingdom known in my actions and in my words? How may I prove faithful? Because it is the praise of God that I seek. And of course, to do that, you have to actually imagine that one day God might praise you. You think about that? We've talked about it here before. Not just that you'll praise him for all eternity. He'll praise you. That you, as C.S. Lewis said, will get to be an ingredient in the divine happiness. That your paltry little efforts, that your fumbling little devotions, that your risks, because you know he's good and will backfill where you fail, will become converted into ingredients that make God smile. And let me assure you, all the approval that you want in the world, that you look for online, you look for in your job, it's because you were made to crave approval. 
the affirming approval of your master whose happiness he wants you to share. So if you start to get a hold of this and you think, I, I want to expect approval from this master and I, I want my faith to be active, I want to view what I have as a trust, then what you can do is you can start thinking of Christ a lot. Dallas Willard says that prayer is nothing more than asking God, what are we doing together today? Well, that's a great way to think about your morning prayer or your prayer throughout the day is to realize that I am laboring with and for a master who has placed me where I am. Maybe in unexotic places, maybe in difficult places, maybe in the places I wouldn't have dreamed for myself, but my master has placed me and that's how so many people throughout so many eons of time have made their way through because they were laboring for another. They were trying to prove faithful to a trust, they were looking forward to the smile of him they were made to please. Mr. Play It Safe did nothing. He's afraid because he thought little of Christ's character. But it was really his own character that was the problem. He thought little of Christ. He was lazy. He didn't act on what he knew, the secrets that he knew. He didn't act on them. But the stewards who acted were approval expecting. I closed with this. I, many years ago, was up for a scholarship here in town, a seminary scholarship, the Dora uh, Brown McClellan Scholarship. And I was sitting there with what seemed to be 60 people, but it was probably only like seven. And my shirt, by the end, I think, felt like I had just fallen into a swimming pool. And I was terrified. And I knew... A couple of the people in there, Dave Warland was the head of the foundation at that point, one of our elders. I did not know him at that point. It's the first time I'd met him. And Henry Henniger was in there, one of our elders here. I knew him some. We had grown, his sons and I had grown up. At the end of that time, I was a nervous wreck. Sure, as people like me are, that I had done the worst interview that anyone ever had done. Henry looked at me. As I was heading about to leave, going back to Orlando, and he says, If Kathy asks you how you did, you tell her you did very well. If Kathy asks you how you did, you tell her you did very well. Well, man. To have someone strong that I admired watch on something I knew was substandard and tell me I had done very well, it almost dried my shirt. <laughs> and it certainly stuck with me because it was a, a resonance of the divine approval that we who are in Christ have. A favor that looks upon us and does not look at everything we do and say, nope, 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 not enough, not enough, not enough, but delights and says, if they ask you how you did, you say very well. And as you start to know that, you can start to share that 
so that others can get the right idea about their Savior. This year, in the last few years, I've been on that committee myself as a former scholarship recipient. And this year was the first year Henry wasn't on it. A great loss. And it occurred to me, as an homage to him, that I, and I did a rendition of it myself, to scared little seminary wannabes looking for a scholarship, I offered the same advice if you wonder when you walk out of here how you did. You did very well. I had heard the approval of someone strong who had the authority to say it. And it made me eager to share it myself. Christians, don't act in fear. You've been entrusted and conferred a kingdom of happiness sharing. A kingdom of a divine smile that wipes your slate clean and says you have no shame to bear. Go out with word and deed and make others to see it. Share what you've been told. Give what you've been given. Because our master is not hard. He's compassion. He's welcome. And he has plenty of happiness to share. Amen.